0: I'm going to greet you all in the gracious name of Jesus this morning. I don't know if mostly any of you watched the last presidential election. I'm not looking to start a political sermon here. But I did notice with interest something that happened during the campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, Probably a familiar name to many of you. Elizabeth Warren was running for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States. Something happened during this 2020 campaign uh, that caught my attention. And that was an interaction that Elizabeth Warren had with a, I believe it was a five or six year old girl. And uh, I should have come prepared with a volunteer. I wanted to uh, do a little bit of a demonstration here and ask you a question. But I'm fairly sure there's probably not a five, six, seven-year-old girl in the audience with enough nerve or trust me enough to come up here for just a moment to help show something. Does anybody want to volunteer? I promise not to embarrass you. Caroline, you're up close to me. Would you have just a minute for me? Can I ask a simple thing from you? I'll take that as a no. Thanks for your patience. I didn't mean to pick on you. Um, Megan, what about you? Okay. Of course. All right. Well, what she performed with this girl um, was captured by television cameras and made a lot of news. And it was basically this. She ran across this girl and spoke briefly to the girl, and she kneeled with the girl, and the two of them exchanged a little gesture that caught my attention. Can you miss? Ready? That was it. And Caroline, you could have done that. Um, do you want to go ahead and All right, that little simple exchange was Elizabeth Warren's pinky promise. I don't know how many of you were ever involved in pinky promises as children. I don't even know if they still exist today. I, personally, that was the first pinky promise I ever performed. Um, I forgot to affirm something there. I, I meant to affirm that I would finish my sermon on time and that I would uh, preach the truth uh, by the grace of God. And we would shake on that and do a pinky promise. I don't know if that's a girl thing or a boy thing. That happened to be a girl thing that day. Elizabeth Warren made a pinky promise with a little girl that she would be an advocate for women's rights if she was nominated and then elected president. Of course, she wasn't and didn't have a chance to fulfill that promise. I want to talk this morning about the term covenant. I want to make the point, if I make no other point by the end of the sermon, that a pinky promise is not a covenant. A covenant is a much more serious thing. I know we all know that. But how comfortable are we with the term covenant? Charles Spurgeon said that this term covenant is the vital essence of every doctrine in the Word of God. That is everything, every teaching in the Scriptures is built on a foundation of this concept of covenant. That is, that we serve a covenant God as a covenant people, and we're bound by the strictures, by the requirements, the demands of the new covenant. I have a question for you this morning. How important is the new covenant to you? Do you consider it a blessing? A great blessing, an asset, a tremendous asset, more important than anything. How do you feel about the new covenant? Say an unbeliever came up to you, an unchurched person, and said, what is all this covenant? Can you just tell me, like chapter and verse or in one sentence, what is the new covenant? Could you confidently answer that question for an unbeliever? If the New Covenant Yes, and by the way, the right answer to that question I asked is yes, very important. Why do we squirm a little at that question? Maybe you don't. Maybe someone should stand up and describe the New Covenant for me, chapter and verse, and in one sentence. If it's so foundational and so important to our lives now and to eternity. There's a lot riding on this concept of the New Covenant. So, I'm the unbeliever. I asked that question and you stammered a little and I'm not sure what you might have come up with. Some of you, I'm sure, would have done better than me, but I imagine some of you would have struggled to lay out the New Covenant or even to describe what exactly is a covenant after all. We already affirmed that a covenant is not a pinky promise. That's fairly easy, but what exactly is it? Are you fulfilling the new covenant or are you breaking the new covenant? Is it possible to break the new covenant? What are the consequences of breaking the new covenant? If we aren't real clear on what keeping it is, then how do we know we're not breaking it? And we can well imagine the consequences of breaking the new covenant are not good. Old Israel broke the old covenant and they were cut off. I'll ask this question again at the end of the sermon, but I just want you to think about as I go through this message, how would you answer the question? I'll say we as a brotherhood here at Shade Mountain Christian Fellowship, but also individually. Are we keeping the new covenant? All right. I'd like to try to cover four Items here this morning, not sure how I'll do, but I'll lay them out for you if you're taking notes. I'd like to consider what is a covenant. I'd like to look at the Old Testament covenant language. I'd like to look at New Testament covenant language. And I'd like to think about, as I'm preaching through the epistle of 1 Peter, how it's steeped in covenant language. And if we look for it, it's everywhere. shouldn't surprise us. Peter was a Jew. He was steeped in a culture where covenants were foundational. We're not Jews, uh, we're not first century people, we're kind of removed from this. And so we read the scriptures with this denseness about covenants. We we know covenant is bible we don't say that word very much during the week, but we have this cultural disconnect from the term covenant, and yet, we are as responsible as old Israel to keep the covenant that's been assigned us. And we have the example. I think it's Thessalonians. I'm not positive about that. but uh, um, These things are given for our admonition, that is, our warning, upon whom the ends of the world have come. That is, we look back at Israel's failure and we read in the Old Testament the consequences of their failure and we are warned by them. Purpose of the Old Testament. That's a pretty good one. They're given for our warning. Another scripture that's familiar is, uh, let him that think if he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Are we really head and shoulders in our faithfulness above old Israel? We have a better covenant. The Hebrew writer makes that plain. But if we can't really quantify it and we can't clearly describe how it's kept and we can't confidently affirm that we are in fact keeping it. Is that better covenant a profit to us? So this idea of keeping the covenant or breaking the covenant from my background, a Protestant evangelical background, the idea of keeping the new covenant, kind of bizarre. I was talking with Rebecca this morning, I said that would have been about as ridiculous in a Presbyterian or even a Baptist context I was asking the question, are you holding those clouds up there up in the air? <laughs> holding up clouds. That's God's job. We trust God for that. He does very well. Sometimes those clouds settle down a little, but he gets them back up. What could be more ridiculous than to ask a child of God, are you keeping the new covenant? After all, we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. Jesus shed the blood. Of the New Covenant. We don't shed our blood. That price is paid. Right? It's back to the cloud thing. Jesus paid it all. So the other side of the New Covenant goes on in that song. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. There's two sides to every covenant. And so it is with the New Covenant. Alright. It's not nonsense. To ask the question, how do you keep the new covenant? And it's not nonsense to examine ourselves and consider, are we in fact keeping it? So what is a covenant? Someone has said that God in no way relates to His people outside the context of covenant. That is all the way through Holy Scriptures we read of a covenant God establishing a covenant with a covenant people who then relate to Him Through that covenant, we have no relationship with God except as traitorous enemies. We have no relationship with God outside of the New Covenant. Someone has said the term covenant is the most doctrinally significant term in all of Scripture. And yet, it's kind of an awkward term to us. We understand the Word of God. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's neatly divided into two Testaments. Do you know a more accurate term for the two testaments is the two covenants? I'm not certain why I have a a theory that the King James translators in 1611 used the term testament to kind of distance Christianity from Judaism. That is, the Jews killed Jesus. Let's back away from them. We're not going to be subject to a covenant. That sounds pretty Jewish. Let's have testaments. A testament is like a will. And a will can just be a piece of paper that gives us something. The Scriptures are divided into an old covenant and an old Israel that failed, broke the covenant and were cut off from the kingdom of God and a new covenant and a new people that are grafted in. Alright, covenant people, we relate to a covenant God through the New Covenant. I want to talk about a little bit about what a covenant, by saying what it's not. See if I can write these things down. Worst thing in the world is to be in front of a group and have a dry pen. Or no pen. We'll see how this one does. Alright, I'm going to describe what a covenant is by saying what it's not. I'm going to start with what it's not. I don't know if you can read that to the back. But a covenant is not clueless chaos. That, as we relate to a God that we really don't know. We don't know what He expects from us. We don't know why we're here. We're just bobbling around and trusting that when eternity comes, we'll get to know this God that we don't know now. I would say that this idea permits every man does that which is right in his own eyes. There's no restrictions We may not know the God, but we also don't know His demands, So we're just kind of blissfully ignorant. I think we could say this about much of the nominal church today. That is, carrying Bibles around or not, we really don't have an understanding of what's wrapped up in the New Covenant and the requirements and the restrictions that are the fiber of the New Covenant. I would say the nominal church. Professing mainstream, I don't want to get too... Stepping on toes here. But there are a great body of professing believers that are outside the covenant largely because they don't even understand what it is. Okay. Above uh, clueless chaos, we can have understanding. That is, a knowledge of the Word of God. Maybe this is Um, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is, we have head knowledge. Uh, David said in Chronicles, God has given me understanding how to build the temple. There was no particular restrictions or or commitment or penalties related to it. He just had it. He knew something. He knew what God wanted. Alright, the next step up on the ladder of approaching what a covenant is, is an agreement. That is, we not only understand our God, why He's placed us here, what He wants from us, but we agree we will accept that. We'll take that. That's okay. We agree. Much like a pinky promise, an agreement is not a covenant. The uh, expression of someone in clueless chaos would be, say what? Confronted with the word of God, huh? not really getting that. Have no clue. Have no idea. The expression of someone that has understanding is, "I see." I see. The expression of someone who's rose rose to the level of an agreement with the living God says, "I see, and I will." I. Will. I will. I see what God's asking and I will do that. Above an agreement is a commitment. All right. A commitment, I think, is risen to the level of what the best case would be in the world today for marriage. I'm going to say marriage is in the world. Whether they're in a church house or justice of the peace, whatever it is. It's more than just um, I will, but I'm going to try very hard. I'm going to apply myself to this. It's important to me, and I'm willing to invest in this. I'll make a commitment to you, my say, my my wife, wife to be, my new wife. I'm committed to you. I think that in our divorce culture. The reduction of a covenant to a commitment is why we see so many marriage failures today. There's no consequences. The person involved in a commitment says, I see, I understand, I agree. I'm going to invest myself in that. That's important. I'm going to try. But when the going gets tough, the tough get going and we end up with a broken marriage. That's the failure of a commitment. All right. The expression of someone involved in a commitment with the living God would be, I will, I understand, I agree, I will try really hard unless it gets too hard. Next level is a contract. I have to ask the question, we're familiar with this term, why can't we just stop here? I'm sure many of us use contracts daily in our businesses. Contract is a good thing. It binds two people together. It adds the element of consequences for failure. A contract. If I'm involved in a contract with the living God, here's how I express myself. I understand, I see, I agree, I will, or I will expect costly consequences. Costly consequences. Depends on the contract, maybe more or less, depending how it's written. But we understand when you break a contract, you have more than shame. Uh, shame on you, you committed and now you're not doing it. At the level of a contract, shame on you, yes, but here's the penalties for breaking the contract. We do not relate to our covenant God through a contract. We relate to God at the highest level of, of binding agreement, and that is in a covenant covenant I think it's a term that we need to be fluent in it's a this covenant language it's important that we recognize it in the scriptures uh, the scriptures are written by Jews except for uh, Luke Luke and Acts uh, we, we have a Hebrew Bible we can call it New Testament Old Testament distance ourselves from Judaism but that book is written by Jews Covenant. I want to make a little bit of a illustration of the difference between a contract and a covenant. You may or may not have heard that the Taliban has reinitiated amputation for thieves. Okay, the agreement that the government has with the people of Afghanistan under Taliban rule is, if you steal and you cut, we will cut your hand off. That's the consequences of being Convicted of being a thief in Afghanistan under the Taliban. That is a contract. That's corporal punishment. It's costly, yes. I obviously have never had my hand cut off. I'm sure it isn't pleasant, especially when it's done with a sword. But, I do walk away with my skin. As unpleasant as it is, as costly as it is, it's corporal punishment. A covenant is an agreement that if you break it, the consequences are capital punishment. That is death. In in Islam, if you are charged and convicted of being apostate or an infidel, that is a capital offense, and you are separated from your head. This is what's behind the covenant. It's why it's considered the most severe, most rigid, least yielding, most costly. Human agreement to break. Covenant. All right. We relate to our covenant God as a covenant people under the terms of the new covenant. It's none of these things below covenant and it's not a pinky promise. All right. The covenant. If we're in a covenant relationship with our covenant God, we Address him with terms like this. Instead of, I have no idea what you're saying, or I see, or I see and I agree, or I agree and I'm willing to labor to do what you ask, or I will labor to do what you ask and if I don't, I should suffer some consequences. This is our expression. I will perform what's asked of me under the new covenant and you, God, will be our God, and you will provide your side of the new covenant, or there will be devastating, unthinkable, intolerable, life-ending consequences. This is what's at stake. If you make a covenant with someone, you are pledging your life to fulfill what you've agreed to. We're not in Middle East times, we're not in Bible times, but in Middle East and Bible times... Covenants between human beings were common. There's a practice, we could take the time and look at it. It's in Genesis 15, 1-18, if you want to look. I think I'm going to keep moving here. But in Genesis 15, 1-18, this practice is carried out between God and Abraham in the establishment of God's people. And that is, In human terms, a covenant would look like this. You would take a goat and you would cut it down the middle. You would cut it in half. You would drain the blood and gore into a pile and throw one shell on one side of the pile and one shell on the other side of the pile. Okay, that's primitive and obscene and kind of disgusting and disgraceful to our sensibilities here in modern Western times, but... This kind of thing actually goes on today. I wouldn't say it's common. I I really don't know. But in a society that understands amputation for theft, carrying out a covenant by dividing an animal in two is practice. So then this this covenant procedure goes on and both parties stamp through this pile of guts and blood and gore, much like children in in a, a rain puddle. That is intentionally to make a mess. Not kind of tiptoeing and trying to just hit the edges of it, but stomping through it. And you come out the other side a mess. The parties will turn around after walking through. They'll survey what they've drug out of that pile and what they've done to that pile. And that animal sitting in two pieces on either side of that pile and surveying that, they will face each other and say, May God do this and worse to me if I break my agreement with you. This is a covenant. I don't know how to put that all in one sentence for the unbeliever, but we should have this imagery when we talk about covenant God and covenant people and the new covenant. We kind of throw this all around. Sometimes I think a little loosely. At least I do. Think about how, I said this is primitive and disgusting and obscene even, like people, modern people actually doing that. Are we thankful to live in a kinder, gentler, more advanced, more progressive time? We don't do that. We e-sign on emails or, or if we really want to take a chance on getting some microbes, we might shake hands, but cutting animals in half and stomping through. Surely we've advanced beyond that. Well, I have a question for you. Two forms of covenant we're very familiar with in the church is the marriage covenant and the baptism covenant. And I'm not sure that it wouldn't do both of those ceremonies a little bit of good. I don't want to go too far with this, but you can imagine if at baptism or at marriage, the parties involved faced each other and said, may God do this and more to me if I break my covenant with you. Just saying. So this term covenant is all through the Old Testament. Hundreds of times the term is used. It's often used with a, a word before it. The word for covenant is barith. And the word before it is karath. And it's karath, barith. And it's interesting to me that King James translates that as made. God made a covenant with Abraham. But the word is actually cut. Cut. When uh, Zipporah cut the foreskin of her son in uh, Exodus, she used this word, karith. She didn't make her son. She cut her son. Cut a covenant. All right. Well, we have a number of covenants that we have no time to think about, but I'll just throw them out there. I said the Old Testament was saturated with this covenant language. Covenants are named. Some people have named seven of them. Adamic with Adam. Noahic Noahic with Noah. Abrahamic. Mosaic with Moses, the old covenant. Davidic, the new covenant. I have a question for you. We sing the song Music of Heaven. It's interesting. In the brothers' meeting, we were discussing music and what's best and what's most sanctified and what's most pleasing to God and what's a blessing to us. And, that's all interesting discussion. I don't mean to hash much out about that. Other than to say we know the music of heaven is really going to be something. Looking forward to that, I think. And we participate a little in that when we as God's people perform and experience the music of heaven here in the brotherhood. I want to ask you about the language of heaven. The language of heaven. What, what will we talk like in heaven? What did Adam and Eve talk like in the garden? When God spoke to them, I've heard, I think some people expressed that they're pretty sure it was German. (laughs) I don't want to take away from that. I'm sure it's a high and holy language. Um, Talk to a Jew, Hebrew, no question. Language of heaven, Hebrew. It's going to be Hebrew. It's got to be Hebrew. Nothing else. You better get studied up, folks. Hebrew. Uh, we could say Greek. I've often said God's love language was Greek. We have the New Covenant revealed to us in Greek. Uh, for a, a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church would say that the holiest language, the language of heaven, was Latin. Maybe we have some more studying to do. Well, Latin's kind of fallen into disfavor now, but I'd like to suggest that when... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of angels, and we think, what in the world tongue would an angel speak with? One thing for sure, at its core, the base of the language would be covenant. Covenantal language. My opinion. The language of heaven. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 12 have here a part of the establishment of the covenant of God with His people through Abraham. We Here in Genesis 12, this actually doesn't have the walking through the cut up animals. That's in another passage. Um, But that's part of it. There's a lot of things that are missing from this passage. And the same in the New Testament. That's why I said, find me chapter and verse for the New Covenant. Well, chapter and verse is Genesis, or is, uh, John, Matthew. I need a drink, excuse me. Matthew through Revelation. The New Covenant is the New Testament. And chapter and verse is extended. It's very difficult to find a verse or a paragraph and say, there's the New Covenant in all its glory. It's all we need. We've got it right there. We don't. We have the New Testament, 27 books. It's all through it. Well, this is a part of the Old Covenant. It's not the entirety. But we see something interesting here. I want you to notice as I read this that it doesn't just come out and say covenant. Now, a covenant is this solemn agreement between two parties and laying out the consequences if it's broken. That's the covenant. Now, walking through the muck may or may not be part of it, but you've got the covenant agreement between two parties and an understanding that if either party breaks the covenant... Devastating consequences. That's the covenant. Here in Genesis 12, it's not a covenant per se. It's not. It's not the the language of covenant as much. It's hidden in it, and you have to go in looking for it. I'm going to read these first three verses, and I'm going to break in and say God's part, God's people's part, because it isn't just right there unless you're looking for it. We're looking for it. It'll be very obvious. But otherwise, you blow through it. and you're, Yeah. 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 Okay. Next. Someone says, well, what's the Old Covenant? I frankly have no idea. If we're not looking for the covenant language, we're going to miss it. It's three times in three verses. Read with me. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said unto Abram, here we have the two parties of the covenant. Abram representing God's people going forward and our covenant God. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Under a land I will show thee. Alright, here we have Abram's part. Obey. Get out. Go. I'll show you. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee. And make thy name great. God's part. Other half of the covenant. Do what you're told. And you'll receive this blessing. I will make you a great nation. I will bless thee. I'll make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. Abram's part. A requirement that He should be a blessing. It's not that you'll just be a blessing because I got you to this place. No. This is a command. You will be a blessing where I put you. Abram's part. Verse 3. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. God's part. He's going to bless the people that are on good terms with God's people and He will curse the ones that are on bad terms. God's part. And... In these shall all families of the earth be blessed. That is Abram's part. I grew up understanding that to be God's part, but Abram had the responsibility to bless all the families of the earth as a representative of God's people. So we see the covenant language, and yet it's not laid out. God made a covenant with Abram. I will put you in this place and you will do this thing. And the consequences of not doing it aren't laid out, but they're implied by the fact that we serve a covenant God and we understand He relates to us through covenant language. And we know that covenants, when broken, aren't pinky promises. All right. We have in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, two mediators, and they're intentionally uh, very similar. If you're still... Uh, near the front of the Bible, Exodus 24, verse 8. Look at the mediator of the old covenant in the person of Moses. What did I say? Exodus 24, verse 8. Mediator of the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant. Same thing. Exodus 24, verse 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant... Which the Lord hath made with you concerning these words. Okay, so here we see the action of this blood being distributed and they're qualified to participate in the covenant to the extent they have that blood on them. Moses is the mediator, he stands between God and man, he sprinkles the blood. And they are credited with having that blood on them because they have the blood of the covenant, the covenant that the Lord made with his people concerning all these words. Good. Now, let's flip to Matthew 26 and look at the New Covenant. It's not just coincidence that Jesus here is practically parroting what was said by Moses. He is cutting a New Covenant. Matthew 26, 27 and 28. Jesus, He Jesus, verse 27 He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. We notice, just as an aside, that under the old covenant, the blood was sprinkled. It was external. But here the blood of the new covenant is consumed. I find that interesting. Exciting. He says, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new testament. You know, this would be clearer if it said covenant. should. It's all right. We know this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. All right. So we're considering the the jump from the old to the new covenant. I want to just briefly look at Jeremiah 31. This I'm not sure I might have brought someone to this passage if they said, give me chapter and verse for the new covenant. But this isn't the new covenant. It's a prophecy of it. It's looking forward, it's telling us for them to expect and what it'll look like, but it isn't actually establishing a covenant. Let's look at Jeremiah thirty one, verse thirty one. Uh familiar passage. Thirty one thirty one. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I want to notice here just if anybody's a little uncomfortable with how closely I'm identifying us as a new Israel and excluding old Israel. um, I don't really want to get into that too much here, but it does say here that the new covenant would be with the house of Israel. I would take this to mean the new Israel because the new covenant was Largely uh, profitable to a spiritual Israel, not an ethnic Israel. So anyway, he says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband, that means I was faithful. I took care of my side of the covenant. They failed. They broke it. But, This shall be the covenant, verse 33. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put My law in their inward parts, I will write it on their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be My people. We see the covenant language again here in verse 33. The commitment God makes and the demand He makes on us. The commitment. I'll put My law in their inward parts. I'll write My law in their hearts. Our responsibility. The other side of the covenant. Verse 33. They shall be my people. They shall be my people. You know that can come across like, well, that's just something that will happen because God did it. Just like He holds up the clouds, we'll be His people. But no, we have a responsibility here. This is our side of the covenant. We're to be God's people. Are you keeping the covenant? Are you keeping the new covenant? Is the same thing as asking the question, are you being God's people? Are you doing what's demanded of you under the new covenant? He will be our God. That's his part. We will be his people. That's our part. It's not a throwaway. Nice of God to make us his people the same way he holds up the clouds because it doesn't cost us anything. I hope you hear yeah, that's being a little cynical. Um, we do have a part to play. Being God's people is our responsibility. All right. Ask the question again. Are you keeping the new covenant or are you breaking it? I want to look at just a couple scriptures and then get back to first Peter and then be merciful and keep my pinky promise. Be done by quarter tilt. I actually didn't express that pinky promise. so Maybe I'm not on the hook. Uh, So I wanted to look at some old covenant covenant language and talk about how to look for it in the Scripture where God says, I will and you shall. The I will and you shall. That's the, the hallmark of this covenant language. Anywhere God says, I will and you shall. It's even on the board behind me. I noticed. They wait on the Lord. Can we just expect renewed strength, mounting up with wings as eagles, running and not be weary, walking and not be faint? And praise God He does that for us. Or is this covenant language? Is there a responsibility for our part in this verse? Just an example. It's, it's all through the old covenant. Is this covenant language a mix of responsibilities to the extent that you wait on the Lord? Under the covenant that you relate to him by. To that extent will you renew your strength. Rise up with wings as eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. That is not an unconditional promise. To the extent that we perform our part, God performs his. Alright, um, so we'll just take my word for it. That the Old Testament is full, of it. you can look for it. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 61, Psalm 103, Psalm 107, a few places that you can just see real clearly that God is promising a blessing, but there's a burden accompanying it. He's making a demand to accompany the doctrine. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Familiar verse, I want to look at it with the Lens of someone looking for covenant. Acts 1 verse 8. Please. Acts 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we take that verse and answer the question, are we keeping the new covenant? Well, let's look at the verse. God's done His part. Child of God, you have the power. Promised Spirit. The Holy Ghost come upon you. Our part. Be witnesses. To the extent we are obedient to that requirement, we are keeping the new covenant. Ye shall be my witnesses. It's not like the clouds. God holds them up in the air. He makes us witnesses. How can they help but to notice us? No, we have the responsibility to be God's witnesses. Covenant language. Conditional blessings. Um, Luke 4:18. Luke 4 and verse 18. Jesus. Applying this to himself, but it's safe to apply it to us as God's people. Out of the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's God's part. Because he hath anointed me to... Here's our part. Are we keeping the new covenant? Preach the gospel to the poor. Heal the brokenhearted, Preach deliverance to captives. Preach the recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty them are bruised, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, that wasn't just for Jesus. Jesus is our pattern. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him for those purposes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you for the exact same purposes. Answer the question, are we keeping the new covenant? We are, to the extent that we are preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted preaching deliverance to captives, preaching recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty them that are bruised, preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. Can we honestly ask ourselves, can we say without blessing that we are investing ourselves in those purposes? That's our side of the covenant. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. I know we're not preaching through Ephesians right now, but we almost need to notice three verses in Ephesians 1 because it helps us understand covenant language. Ephesians 1, verse 6. Uh, Let's start Ephesians 1, middle verse 5. We understand our salvation is accomplished by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit. And verse 5 says, we enjoy the adoption by the Father. We enjoy adoption to a purpose to the praise of the glory of His grace. Well, there it is. The two sides of the covenant. We are adopted. We are children of the living God. Praise God for that. To the extent that we are to the praise of the glory of His grace. Are you keeping the new covenant? Are you a reflection of the glory of God's grace? This is the covenant language that Paul's laying out here. Verse 12. Uh, Yeah, verse 12. That, that's a purpose statement, that's a word, this is why, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. Okay, God's provided Christ and we can trust in Him and we become children of the covenant. The other side of it is that we should be to the praise of His glory. You see the two sides of the covenant. Verse 14, verse 13, at the end, the Holy Spirit of promise. Praise God for that. What a blessing. God has given us His Spirit. It's the earnest of our inheritance. We remember that that means it's the down payment. As precious and powerful as the Spirit is, that's just a little pittance. It's just it's just uh, agreement money. It's the down payment. The real blessings are yet to come. But the Spirit of promise, the earnest of your inheritance, is given to you for a purpose that you would, verse 14, be to the praise of His glory. To the extent that we are glorifying our covenant God, We are faithful covenant people. Alright. Three minutes to spare. First Peter, chapter 1. I want to notice here, it bothered me a little to skip this when we preached through chapter 1 and now I'm in chapter 2 and I almost skipped it again and I just decided I'm going to invest a message in talking about identifying covenant language. I want to get comfortable with this term and this idea that we have a responsibility we don't go through life rejoicing under clouds that God holds up. We have a part to play. In 1 Peter, the opening of the epistle reads in covenant language describes the blessing that we enjoy and the burden that comes with the blessing. I brought a little object lesson. Thought I might have a few people asleep by this time of the message. I'll wake everybody up. All eyes on me? Yeah, it worked. Almost. Covenant language typically takes a blessing and sandwiches it or uses it to sandwich where's my book a burden. Let's see if we can do this here. All right. Happens to be a book about Menno Simons. That isn't really relevant. What matters is that you consider this the burden. You consider this your part of the covenant, your responsibility, your duty, your demand that God makes. For starters, without the blessing of God, you try to carry out that burden. All right. We're going to be covenant people. The covenant God without the blessing of God, without His provision, doesn't work. The blessing of our covenant God comes with a burden that we're well able to perform because the blessing makes it possible. The blessing and the burden of the covenant. Covenant language. 1 Peter 1. Let's look at this. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 2. I want to notice the blessings that we enjoy from God. Verse 2, we are, verse 2, elect by the Father. We are sanctified by the Spirit. We are obedient by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Grace and peace to you be multiplied. Blessing, blessing, blessing. There it is. That's God's part. He has established grace and peace to us, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, sanctified by the Spirit under obedience, and elect of the Father. That's God's part. Verse three starts. It's a little unfortunate. If you remember, we said the italic B in the second verse, the second word of verse three, blessed be the God and Father, sounds like a prayer, like wouldn't it be great if God was blessed? But the B is an insertion and it's actually an imperative. It's a command. It's our part. It says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our part. God elected, God sanctified, God made obedient, God sprinkled, God gave grace, God gave peace. He set up all that blessing. We bless God. need to take care of that italic B that shouldn't be there. It turns a a command into a prayer. This is a command. Bless God. Look what he's done for you. Bless God. Then we go on and we get the other side of the blessing. What else has God done? Verse 3. Bless God, which, according to His abundant mercy, you enjoy His mercy, has begotten us again, you enjoy new life. unto a living hope, you enjoy a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. Our inheritance, verse 4, incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven. Kept, verse 5, no less than by the power of God. You see how we have a pair of bookends. This is God's work. And we have our responsibility. Blessing, blessing, burden, covenant language. All right, I'm going to close with the two verses that would have been our text for this sermon. Um, We've spent a lot of time looking at 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. We will set it to rest today. But we'll notice the covenant language of 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. That is, looking at what God has blessed and what God has blessed and the burden He's placed. Because going forward, we need to be clear as we go through the rest of this epistle that Peter's assuming we caught the covenant language. We caught the motivating, empowering blessing of God and we accept the burden that comes with it. And we are covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Spent... I know it seems interminable. A number of sermons talking about these titles. These are badges of honor that were ripped from old Israel. We said the new covenant was precious to us. These titles were precious to old Israel. And they were taken away. And they were given to us. And if we blow past them, shame on us. They better be precious because they are part of our empowerment to be covenant keepers. Verse 9. Ye are... Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people, blessing, four blessings. Covenant language. That here's the burden. Ye should show the forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Here's the burden. I asked the question at the beginning of the sermon Are we keeping the new covenant? To what extent are we investing costly investment? In showing forth the praises of God. To that extent, we are keeping the new covenant. And being warned by the experience of old Israel, we avoid that result. Cure your people that you should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now we get the other bookend. The other blessing that goes with the burden. Verse 10. Which... In time past, guess what? You folks were despised, defiled dog Gentiles. I don't think there's any ethnic Jews here. You had not received any mercy of God. You were not even a people. You were worse than dogs. You were mongrels. You were wandering the world. You didn't even have a commonality with each other. Now you do. God has shown mercy. God has shown mercy in sparing you from a just punishment, and He's also made you the people of God. He's made you a people that were not a people. We're going to read on. Show forth the praises of God, our responsibility. One question I have, can we not just have a members meeting and get together and get a whiteboard and make ten top ten things we come up with? How are we going to show forth God's praises? Who has an idea? Ah, we could open a donut shop, or we could have a a ministry to... A hospice ministry to dying people will will show forth God's praises. Let's have some more ideas. Peter wouldn't have us do that. Peter would say, consider the covenant. Now, listen to the rest of the epistle. It moves on and uses terms like abstain and submit and suffer and honor and love. This is how God would have His people show forth His praises. We do not have the freedom to decide how to show forth God's praises. We have some freedom. I mean, application is going to vary from time to time and culture to culture, church to church. Some freedom. But it needs to fall within this context. So we'll pay close attention to the remainder of this epistle because it's going to lay out in costly detail what covenant-keeping people do to show forth the praises of their covenant God. Let's kneel for prayer.